If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will turn uh, to Paul's epistle to the church at Thessalonica, First uh, Thessalonians. I don't know about you, but I wanted to shout, <laughs> and I was crying, looking ahead in great joy. Um, As we say in these here parts, that was good stuff there. <laughs> uh, I trust you and your family had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I was reminded Thursday morning, uh, really uh, Wednesday night into Thursday morning, I was reminded just uh, how often I hear uh, people say, um, I, I'm, I, I'm blessed. Um, and I anticipated that going into Thanksgiving Day. We would be together with family, and um, I know some of them uh, are without Christ, but they would agree that they are blessed, and they would say, I am grateful, uh, grateful for things, grateful for life. Um, you know, a healthy person will say, uh, I've been blessed with good health. A person just recently uh, overcoming illness would say, I, I'm, I'm blessed and I'm grateful that health has been restored. I'm blessed to be better. Family who's just come home with a healthy new, newborn, they'll say, uh, and we've been blessed. Um, and as I was thinking about that, we know that all good things come from God. But I wonder in the course of that, as I was thinking about it, do folks really stop and come to understand that it is God that has given them what they have. And I think to some degree, God's common grace plays into all this. Because I think the person who has health, though he or she may and somehow try to take care of themselves physically, I think the person that has good health realizes that's really out of my control when they look across the street at their neighbor whose life has followed just about the same course as theirs, but they don't have good health. Or to come home with the newborn, but then to realize that someone didn't come home with their newborn on that day. Or to have food and realize that there are some who don't have food. I, I think God's common grace uh, is spread out to at least remind those who have that they are not in themselves responsible altogether for what they have. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Which prompts me to say this, and all of this is leading to where we're going today. We're entering into a season where we're going to cross paths with people and things and businesses that give some evidence that there is some kind of an understanding that Christmas is about Christ. I already saw a TV commercial. I've seen it a half a dozen times, I suppose, just uh, yesterday when we were decorating the Christmas tree. Uh, it starts out, and you may have seen it. I don't even remember the commercial. Most of them don't make sense to me. But the commercial begins with uh, joy to the world, the Lord, and then the song ended. And then they go into the commercial. 
And uh, I, I thought about that. I said they, they start out with this great hymn that would point to the Lord and they stop it there and then they go into their commercial and whatever it is that they're trying to sell. But the end is, is that there will be along the way uh, some evidence as small as it may be, of folks that are acknowledging Christmas and the birth of Christ. And we should be pleased to see that evidence. But we shouldn't assume, and this is our danger, we shouldn't assume that that evidence means that that person or business or whatever it may be are believers. Really trusting Christ. This is a season for us to proclaim the gospel. It is. Where there is evidence and where there's no evidence. And I will assure you, and I know this for myself, that this next month there will be no lack of opportunity to tell others about Christ. So I want to ask you to do this. Don't be silent. Don't be assuming and don't be silent. We ended Matthew's Gospel pointing to our mission as believers. The mission of making disciples of all nations. Evangelizing the nations. Adam's already mentioned that today. Booney has as well. Marking off those who accept the message of the Gospel and believe by baptizing them. And then teaching them the Word of God that they may be mature in Christ. And continue the work of making disciples until when? Well, until they die, until the Lord comes. And we're always looking for the Lord to come. And I want you to know this is no small task. We say it like it's simple, but it's really no small task. There are two things that are necessary for this to be accomplished. Two things. It requires the authority to be so bold as to travel the world and say, thus saith the Lord. You know that's what we're doing when we are proclaiming the gospel. We are saying, thus saith the Lord. We don't always begin that way, but that's what we're doing. And it requires a power to see men and women made spiritually alive. Those two things, that authority and that power. So what is needed is a superimposed authority to make bold claims and to know that those claims are true and a supernatural power to make people believe. And we closed our time in Matthew, remember, with Jesus making a statement where He bookended that commission with those two things. He said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. And then, that's that superimposed authority. There is no other authority. That's that superimposed authority. And then he said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. There, in that promise, is the presence of the supernatural God that has the power to change the lives of men and women. We don't have that power. We have the work of saying, thus saith the Lord. By the authority given and by the supernatural power that God works in the lives of people, people's lives will be changed. Now the last two weeks we backed up 640 years from the birth of Christ. 
actually about 640 years from the death of Christ. Before the cross. And we saw how God was working to redeem and restore His people. We saw God reveal that He is a sovereign God who uses means that we would never expect to accomplish His purposes. We sang about that this morning too, by the way. I hope you picked up on that. Uh, in fact, there were bits and pieces of our last four or five weeks all mixed in the things that we were singing and the things that we were reading today and hearing from God's Word. We witness that He is just and that all who reject Him, all who are prideful, will perish. And then we landed on this, but the righteous shall live by faith. And last week we uncovered what that meant. We uncovered that it means that the righteous shall live by faith means that they will be justified by faith. Faith in the atoning work of Christ. He having propitiated for their sin. He who knew no sin was made sin so that those who believe might become the righteousness of God. The righteous shall live by faith. We also came to understand that we aren't justified by the law, by the keeping of the law. We looked at that in the Galatians. That was exactly what, what Habakkuk was running into. If we, if, we could, if we could just keep the law, everything would be okay. When God was, That was not what God told him. He said, the righteous shall live by faith, not the law keepers. And then we said that discipleship isn't a work to get people to do better things. That, that's not what it means to be a disciple maker. That's not our, that's, that's, that's not our intent. It's not. It's a work toward teaching and encouraging people to love God more deeply, to worship Him alone. That's what it's an effort. And then we said that the righteous shall live by faith is necessary for perseverance. Completing a life of faith to the end. And this brings us to our text today. So I want us to read it. Before I read it, to give you a little bit of background. You may want to hold your place in 1 Thessalonians and flip over to Acts chapter 13. Carry you back to Acts 13 because uh, if you recall, uh, Apostle Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church of Antioch to engage in what we understand was their first missionary journey. In other words, they were going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They were going places that had never heard the gospel. And so beginning in Acts chapter 13, that's, that's what they did. Uh, upon completing that journey, they came back to Antioch and they reported to the church at Antioch. They reported back to their sending church. While they were there, there were a group of people from Judea that had come and had started teaching them and saying, wait a minute, I'm out here with the Gentiles. The only way that they can be saved is if they're circumcised. Uh, and uh, Paul stood and he just refuted that. He said, no, that's not the case. So in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas and a group of other men, a delegation from the church at Antioch, traveled to Jerusalem to speak with the church leaders there to do two things. One, to say, look... These men are coming from up here and they are teaching this and this is not true. And then two, they wanted to report back on what they had seen take place and give report to the church there. So they did. 
And what we know is the Jerusalem Council, that first church council, they met and they determined, you're exactly right, they don't have to be circumcised, uh, but we do want them to live more lives. Uh, and uh, we, we don't want them eating things that are strangled, and we don't want them idol, involved in idol worship, but they don't have to be circumcised. So Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch. And they say, you know what we need to do? We need to do what we do in our mission work. We need to go back and follow up where we've been. So they were getting ready to make their way there, and then Paul and Barnabas uh, had a disagreement over whether John Mark should go with them. And Paul just said, no, nah, he can't go. And Barnabas said, yeah, well, I think he ought to be able to go. And so they parted ways. Barnabas and John Mark headed out then to follow up on those churches. Paul took Silas and then later picked up Timothy. And they set out on another missionary journey. This time they were headed to Asia to take the gospel. Before they got there, uh, God put a block in their way and then gave Paul a vision. And in that vision during the night, a man from Macedonia was calling out and saying, come help us. So Paul altered the plans, did not go to Asia, but went to Macedonia. When he got to Macedonia, the first city that he went to was Philippi. And he preached the gospel, and there were those who believed, but Paul got beat up. In fact, he was publicly beaten, he and Silas, and put in prison. He got out of prison, and he left, and he went to Thessalonica, and he preached the gospel there. And there were people who believed. We don't know how long he was there, not sure. But we know he was there at least three weeks. Seems like it must have been longer than that for all the things that he was able to teach them. But in the course of that, things got really difficult there and he had to be taken away in the dark of night for fear of his own life and because there was such a disturbance and an uproar. And if you'll follow along there, chapter 17, you'll see that from there he went to Berea and from Berea he went to Athens and then from Athens he went to Corinth. Now, why did I tell you all of that? That's why this letter exists. Paul had been there. He had preached. He had taught. He had discipled. He had encouraged. Church had been planted. Work had been going on. But he had not been able to go back. And so, he sends Timothy, and he's, we'll read that in just a moment, he sent Timothy to go back and to follow up with them because he cared about them and he wanted to know how they're doing We'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, Silvanius, Silas, okay, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope and our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we may not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remembered, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory Enjoy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. 
For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you're standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I titled the message today, Disciple Making, uh, What Does That Look Like for Me? What does that look like for you? In other words, how do we practically make disciples? Is there a program? Is there a format? Is there something that I can get to show how to make disciples? Well, making disciples really isn't a mysterious process. It's really not. It's simply the act of influencing others to follow Christ by loving them, teaching them, and modeling before them. That's the emphasis. That's what is laid out in this text. Loving them, teaching them, and modeling for them. And I want us to see that today. Now, first, let's look at this. Disciple-making is no easy work. That's the first point. It requires sacrifice. It requires patience. It requires time. We mentioned earlier that this task of disciple-making, while uh, insured, and, and, and granted, it is insured, okay? It is no easy task. We said it requires a superimposed authority and a supernatural power. Both of these things, just us giving attention to them, should help us see that it isn't easy and we already know that it is something that cannot be done by us alone. By us and our strength. By us and our will or our desire. There's something else to consider here. And that is that Paul went to Macedonia because the Lord had closed the way to Asia. God is directing this. So what I want us to see and understand that in our disciple making, God is directing us, causing us to go to certain people. 
Our paths are crossing them every day. That's the reason I said it in looking ahead at this season. There will be no lack of opportunity for us to at least begin at the point of sharing the gospel. There will be no lack of opportunity for that. Whether it be with a neighbor, whether it be with a co-worker, whether it be with a store clerk, whoever it may be. Now, we know that God directed him to Macedonia. So we might think that that would mean that somehow or another it would be smooth sailing for him. Wouldn't we? God's directing me to Macedonia. I'm going to go and everything's going to be fine and it's going to be easy and this is all God's work and this is what He has for us. But I want you to notice that that's not what happened. No, we read there in chapter 2 and read it. Let's look at it again. He's in verse 1. He says, But you yourselves know, brother, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. So, right to start off with, when he goes into Philippi, he is publicly beaten after he preaches and some come to the Lord. He's publicly beaten and put in prison. And you say, well, now what's up with that? What's up with that? Why would God allow this man that he has sent to Philippi to preach the gospel where people need to be saved, why would God allow him to be publicly beaten and put in prison? Well, if you go back and look at the story in Acts, it may have been the only way that the Philippian jailer would have ever been exposed to the gospel. We don't know that. But we do know that God was behind all of that. And Paul even states over again, uh, if you'll look, in chapter 3, he said, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. In other words, there should be an expectation in our disciple making that sacrifices will have to be made and that it is not easy and it is going to be hard. We have a hard time now and I'm speaking of me and I'm confessing this, we have a hard time now making disciples because we can't even oftentimes make the sacrifice of time to work things into our schedule to be with people, to spend time with people, to even sit down and talk about the gospel because we are in a dead run wherever it is we go. Paul goes on to say that he had suffered shamefully there in Philippi and had been treated shamefully. Didn't Christ show us that redemption requires suffering and sacrifice? Paul, writing to the Colossians, said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the steward from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. I'm reminded of him writing to the Romans in chapter 8, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. What's the point? Well, the point that we're making is, is that disciple-making requires commitment. So I, I would just tell us, this is for me, it is for all of us here today. As we set out beyond today, just understand that if the, we are going to be disciple makers, we will have to sacrifice something along the way for that to take place. It will not come without commitment and it will not come without sacrifice. Look in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, and we'll see again something that Paul has to say. He said, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of His saints. He's pressing on even after all of this time, understanding that there are still things that have to be sacrificed for the sake of those disciples. The second thing I want to see in this passage of Scripture that we've read is that disciple-making requires loving people and giving of ourselves. Look at what Paul had to say in chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. He said, but we were gentle among you. We were gentle among you. And and listen how he puts it. Listen, as a nursing mother taking care of her own children, is there, any, is there any picture in your mind that represents gentleness more than that? A nursing mother drawing her child to herself and loving and caring for, giving what? Giving of her whole self. And here's what he said. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Some places translate that our own souls. Because you had become very dear to us. Do you hear the intimacy there? Paul labored hard. He talks about it. In fact, if you read just a little bit farther in verse 9, it said, For remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We're beyond that. We can labor hard, we can toil hard, we can push hard, we can be bold. But disciple-making requires a deep affection and love for people. I have found that if I'm not careful, I'm tempted to make sharing the gospel, evangelizing, and disciple-making kind of utilitarian individual. Become a project. Become a project. And that is not at all what Paul is talking about. 
Because you see, we don't give our souls to projects. We won't even give much time to projects. Projects for us have to be things that are done quickly and move on. Projects for us have to require a little sacrifice, but not a lot. Projects for us become things that we pick them up and we put them down. We complete them and then we don't. How many unfinished projects do you have around your house now? Probably a lot. That's not what Paul's talking about. Disciple making is not just teaching. It's not. We have our mind that we get somebody and we pull off and we read to them and we teach them that. No. Disciple making requires a deep love for people. A deep love so that we show ourselves. We show them what we're passionate about. In hopes that that passion will rub off on them. You know why we saying Christ is our treasure this morning? Because that should be our, He should be our passion. And if Christ is really our treasure, then disciple making will not be a hard thing because we will not be able to not share our passion for Him. And our passion for Him will rub off on others. It just will. Because we will be talking about Him. We will be pointing people to Him. That is if Christ is who we're really passionate about. If we are seeing people come to know the Lord, if that's what we're really passionate about, if we're seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ strengthened and continuing on when it's hard, if that's what we're passionate about, that will rub off on the people that we spend time with. Disciple making will be driven out of this kind of love. And I'll just I'll say this today. We will not be disciple makers until we love like that. That is a necessity. It is a requirement of being a disciple maker. The third thing I want you to see in this passage, in this text, is disciple making does require a commitment to teach the gospel with boldness. We saw that. Look in chapter 2. He said, uh, even after being, and I'm going to paraphrase this, even after being beaten in the street and thrown into prison, with all the bruises and cuts and aches and pains that came from that and abrasions, he said, notice what he says. He said, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Even when we dealt with much conflict right here. Let's just kind of survey 1 Thessalonians and look at how often teaching comes up. Because we, and we're going to look at the evidence of that, but teaching comes up. Look in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, in other words, 
They came and they preached. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So we see that they are teaching. And it says, and, and, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. So there was teaching in the midst of conflict and in affliction. We just read chapter 2 and verse 2, but you can look at it again. Uh, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Look in verse 9 of chapter 2. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work day and night that we might not burden, be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Look in verse 12. We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Look in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, notice they're still teaching. Still teaching. Look in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He goes on and speaks about that. He's teaching them. Look in chapter 4 and verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have what? Been taught by God to love one another. How were they taught by God? Paul had taught them God's Word about what it means to love and what love looks like and how they should love one another. In fact, our ladies, I, I'm grateful for you that you're going to be uh, working through First uh, John together. Because all of that is steeped in learning that loving God and loving one another come together and it's necessary for the life of the body. Look in chapter 4 and verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And now he's already doing what? He's teaching them again. And if we were to read the rest of that text on into chapter 5, you'll just see how Paul just teaches and teaches and teaches. That's what's necessary for disciple making. Now here's the challenge for many of us. We spend so little time reading God's Word that we can't help others walk through it. We don't know where to go. We don't know how to direct them through God's Word. Maybe the beginning of our own disciple-making is that we commit time to reading God's Word. I, I, I know you're busy. I, and you say, well, Jimmy, that's easy for you. We pay you to do that. You, you do. But uh, I read God's Word before you paid me. I read God's Word before any church paid me. I know it's busy. And, and, and let me just say this. Let me just say this. Um, pastors struggle in their devotional life. Pastors struggle there. 
So many do. What I'm saying is, is that we can't teach if we are not reading and we are not studying and if we don't know God's Word. So we can't be disciple makers. That's the point. And if our busyness keeps us away from the business of God, the thing that's most important, what could we conclude? We're just too busy. We're too busy. The fourth thing that we see here is that disciple-making requires modeling. We said that. Loving, teaching, modeling. Disciple-making is more than just teaching someone. It's modeling life. Go back to chapter 1 and look in verse 5. Because our Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In other words, we were modeling something along the way for you. And, and what did they do? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. It wasn't just that we were teaching. It is the way that we were teaching. It was we were giving of ourselves. We were giving of ourselves so that you would understand and know our passion. The thing that we cared most about, which was what was most important for you in your life. We know what kind, you know what kind of men we proved to be. Look in chapter 2. Paul modeled what to do when persecution comes. We read it just a moment ago, but he said, even after we were shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God, boldness in our God, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of conflict. What was he doing? He was modeling for them what should take place when under persecution for the proclamation of the gospel. What do you do? You find boldness in God and you go and do it again. Just think about Paul's life for just a minute. He got beat up a lot. He got beat up a lot. We could go through the litany of things that he went through. Any one of those things would have stopped most of us. But none of them stopped him. And I'm not holding him up as a pedestal. I'm just saying that he was modeling what commitment is required for people to come to know Jesus and for people to be discipled. Then notice how he ministered. He said, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive you. So he's operating in integrity. He's modeling this for them. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, so we speak. Well, we weren't speaking to you to please men. If we did, we would have said something different. No, we were seeking to please God. And we weren't looking for glory for ourselves. In fact, we didn't even demand anything from you, though we could have as being apostles. He said, we didn't do that. Not only that, notice what he said in verse 9. He said, we labored and told, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. In other words, they took jobs 
and worked to provide for their own means so that they could invest in the life of these people. And we were gentle. And we loved you. And we modeled what that looked like. And then notice what he says, for your witnesses and God also and he's not holding himself up here as being this perfect person. He's just saying that we sought to work and serve and love you in holiness and righteousness and in blameless conduct. And then he says, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted and we encouraged and we charged and we pointed you to God, modeling this all along the way. Modeling it. Modeling is a part of disciple making. He even said when we couldn't come to you, we sent Timothy. What? Modeling that we care and that you matter. They weren't out of sight, out of mind. And notice the impact that this had. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 8. Notice the impact that it had. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You see that? We modeled, you imitated, and now you were modeling. Disciple making, going on, day by day, little by little. There's a fifth thing that I want us to draw our attention to, and this that is all, I don't believe that's all that can be said, that is all that we will say regarding the things that are necessary for disciple making. We need to be committed and need to know that we're going to sacrifice. We have to teach, we have to model, and all of that has to be done out of love. Point made. But let's look at the disciple, disciple maker's joy. This is incredible to me because this is, my, it's, this is resonating with my heart. Look at what Paul had to say in the chapter 2 in verse 19. He said, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? What is it? He said, is it not you? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Do you see that in the context of this love, it's not out of obligation, but it is something that is it's just joyous to see people grow in Christ. It is a glorious thing to see someone come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a glorious thing when we can look on each other and see us growing together and maturing together. It is a glorious thing when we see people who have not been to church, who are unchurched, who are lost, to come and then invest in their lives. That is a glorious and joyful thing. And what is even more so is that Paul points us to the fact that that 
will be what we will boast about. Not what we've done, but what God has done in them. And how do we know that that is what he's talking about? Well, back up in verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God that you heard from us, we know as we preached it, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now back up to chapter 1. Why? Because in verse 5, notice, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That's what Paul finds glorious. That's what Paul finds to boast about, is the work of God's Word in the lives of people. The disciple-maker being the instrument in delivering that Word and that love and that model. In closing, there is a sixth thing. And that is the disciples' reward. The disciples' reward is the ongoing work of salvation until the return of Christ. Look over in chapter 5. And look at verse 23. And, And take heart and take courage in this. Paul says, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. The ongoing work of salvation. Sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. The ongoing work of salvation. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. What does it say? He will surely do it. He will surely do it. Now back over in chapter 1. And here's how that fleshed out in their lives as they imitated, heard the Word, had the Word of God ministered to them by the Holy Spirit, saw the model of Paul, imitated that, and then continued to make disciples. Look at what it says there in verse 9 and 10. For they themselves, talking about all the people that you are influencing, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. To do what? To have no other gods before you. We read it earlier. And then to do what? And to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Isn't that incredible? And what do we know? 
He will surely do it. Our time of intercession this morning is for us. Not to be selfish. We're not asking anyone else to be disciple makers yet. We have been charged to be disciple makers. What does that look like for us in moving ahead? Let me ask you to do this. This isn't utilitarian. This is a Macedonian call for you. Find one person. Find one person. That you believe is saying, come help me. Love that one person. Commit to that one person. Share the gospel with that one person. Teach that one person. Love that one person so much that your passion for Christ rubs off on them and rubs into them. Let's pray together. Father, cause us not to pass that person by. Challenge us even now to make the commitment to sacrifice whatever else it is that's going on in our life for that one person. That person that doesn't yet know You. Father, that we would love that person, teach that person, model for that person. And then experience the joy and the glory being pointed back to You as Your Spirit ministers Your Word to his or her heart. Do this according to Your will because You have said that You will keep those whom You've called. Point us to them. In Jesus' name, Amen.